very much. Let's uh, have our Bibles open there and just pray that the Lord will help us to understand. Let's pray. Father, we take uh, your word into our hands and open it, and we do it so easily. But we pray that you would take our lives into your hands and open them. And we ask that there would be a real meeting between us, your people, and you, our living, loving, gracious and powerful God. We pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit may be our teacher, that your word may be our guide, and that as a result of this time together, we may be more concerned than ever for your glory, for your praise, and more thankful than ever for all your grace and goodness to us. So please help us in this hour to concentrate together, to learn from your truth, and so to glorify your name. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well now, last time on Isaiah, as they say, we were following the uh, chronology, the timeline of what was going on in Isaiah's ministry. And we saw that uh, in that year that King Uzziah, Uzziah died, the old order was changing, a new order was starting, and that God had new purposes for his people. He called Isaiah to be his messenger. A handful would believe and respond, the righteous remnant, but many, sadly, would harden their hearts against God and against his word. And the king, Ahaz, was representative of that. So although Isaiah warned him, if you don't stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all, Ahaz ignored that warning. He went off and tried to make an alliance with the Assyrians, who were the big players. He thought, if I can get in with them, then they'll protect me against all my smaller enemies. And, uh, of course, what happened was that they came in with all their power, took over his resources, and Judah, the southern kingdom, capital Jerusalem, became a vassal, that is, a sort of servant of the king of Assyria. After Ahaz died, he was succeeded by his son, Hezekiah, who was a much more godly man, much more dependent upon the Lord. He was by no means a perfect king. He made his mistakes. He too was tempted to go for human alliances. There are chapters like chapters 30, 31, that uh, rebuke Hezekiah for going to Egypt to try to find help in Egypt. Because what was happening was that as Assyria was the dominant force, they were taking more and more of the resources, more and more of the people. The country was being run down by Assyria. And Hezekiah wanted to get out of this. His father Ahaz had got them into it. He wanted to get out of it. And he was tempted to go to the Egyptians to look for help. But Isaiah says to him, God says through Isaiah, the Egyptians are, are, are hopeless. They'll never do anything. He calls them Rahab the sit still. That is to say, they'll never get up. They'll never help you. They'll never do keep their promises. Now, the crisis comes in the year 701 B.C., uh, in that year, the Assyrians finally lost patience with Hezekiah and with his attempts to wriggle out of their controlling uh, authority, and they decided to come and finish off Jerusalem once and for all. By this time, they were the very dominant empire in the ancient world, and their emperor was a man called Sennacherib, and you'll see in my notes that I've referred to Sennacherib's relationship with Hezekiah. It was, of course, a relationship of tyranny. He was an overlord. He was a, uh, a mighty emperor who was going to squeeze, if necessary, the very life out of Hezekiah and out of Judah. And it certainly looked as though that was what was going to happen. 
sometime do read chapters 36 and 37. They're very dramatic chapters about how the Assyrian army comes right to the gates of Jerusalem. They mop up all the little cities which were supposed to be defensive of the capital city. They all fall to the Assyrians and there is this vast army outside Jerusalem ready to besiege the city. And the way you did it in those days was to just starve them into submission. Stop any supplies coming in. Jerusalem was very vulnerable because it had no internal water supply. They had to get the water in from outside the city. And in those ways, it seemed as though uh, it was going to be the end for the city of Jerusalem. But I just want to take you to one short passage which uh, sums up the wonderful thing that Hezekiah did. Just turn back two or three pages, would you please, to chapter 37. And let's see how he met this huge crisis which looked as though it was going to destroy him and his people. The Assyrians send a letter to him in chapter 37 verse 14 demanding his surrender and threatening all sorts of terrible consequences if he doesn't give in. But look at what this godly king does, verse 15. Hezekiah, oh sorry, verse 14. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it, that is the letter that he was sent, before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. And they have cast their gods into the fire. And uh, incidentally, Sennacherib is saying, we're going to do that to your land and to your God. That's what the letter said. For they were no gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. That's magnificent, isn't it? You remember Ahaz refusing the signs that God gave him. If you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. And here's his son standing firm in his faith. What his father had so spectacularly failed to do. And he casts himself on the mercy of God and he asks the Lord to vindicate his own name. Now look at God's response. Verse 33. He sends the messenger Isaiah to the king and among the many things he says, this is perhaps the most important. Verse 33, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. To keep my promises, as it were, to David's line of whom Hezekiah is the current example. So this is what the, the word of the Lord says to him. Now it seems as though that is utterly impossible. There's a huge army, 185,000, outside the city. They have very little in the way of defences. They have very little in the way of resources. But look what does happen. 
verse 36. When God is going to do something wonderful, he starts with an impossibility. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharisa, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So it wasn't the end of Jerusalem, it was the end of Sennacherib. Because Jerusalem's God keeps the promises that he has made. This is the greatest deliverance that Israel ever ever experienced in the Old Testament in terms of numbers. Of course the exodus was the greatest liberation and of course the return from exile was the greatest restoration. But in terms of one deliverance over one night, this is an amazing action of God. But sadly, the story of Hezekiah doesn't end on a note of triumph. His city is delivered from the Assyrians. In chapter 38, his own life is spared and lengthened by the Lord. But just look with me at chapter 39 before we come to our main passage. The first half of the book ends with chapter 39, and it strikes an ominous future note. At verse 1, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. He welcomed them because Babylon is now the coming power. Assyria is just about to fade out of the scene. They are getting weaker and weaker after the destruction of Sennacherib and his line. And now Babylon is ready to take over. And Hezekiah is tremendously flattered that this powerful kingdom of Babylon has come Well, to bring him a present and to say they're so sorry he was sick and so glad he's recovered. And so, verse 2, he showed them his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil. What is left of it? His whole armory. All that was in his storehouses. He's still got some that the Assyrians haven't taken. And there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah didn't show them. And then those ominous words, then Isaiah the prophet came. And he said... What did these men say and from where did they come to you? Oh, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. What have they seen in your house? They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. I wanted to show off. I'm still quite an important little chap, you know, in the Middle East. Then Isaiah said, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, they will be taken away and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Well, that means the end of the Davidic line, doesn't it? Of course, it's not going to happen in Hezekiah's lifetime, but it will be his descendants. And if they are eunuchs, then they're unable to continue the line of David. It looks as though everything in the end is going to collapse. The last verse is very true to life, isn't it? Hezekiah says in verse 8 of chapter 39, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. I'll be okay. And let the next generation cope with this. It's a very human response. But what is 
the real response. Well, now, it's extraordinary that at this point, the prophecy swings right round from dealing with the events in Hezekiah's lifetime and Isaiah's lifetime to a much more distant future. And it's as though the word Babylon triggers, it's a bit like a film, really, not a, not a, not a reprise, not a look back, but a look forward. And at chapter 40, we are told that this exile that is going to happen to Babylon, which was, of course, the greatest um, disaster that happened to the people of God in the Old Testament, it's going to have an end. God is going to use it for positive purposes. And he is going to have a new start beyond the exile. And that really is what chapter 40 is all about, because... As soon as we hear about Babylon, and it's going to be a hundred years before this happens, by the way. But as soon as we hear about Babylon and we realize that this is how God is going to take away the dross. This is how God is going to refine the metal of his people. This is how he's going to purify them through the most traumatic of judgments, the captivity in Babylon. But that isn't the end of the story. He's still committed to David and his throne. He's still committed to his people, Judah. He is still going to restore them. And the focus then shifts in chapter 40, verse 1. The mood changes totally. And at this turning point in the whole book, the concentration now is not on judgment, but on salvation. Because beyond the exile, there will be restoration. And ultimately, a new Jerusalem, a faithful city. See, in the first half of the book, God has proved his own great faithfulness, that he keeps the promises he makes. The Holy One of Israel has all authority and all power to rule as king. And that's the theological foundation on which his people have to build their trust. But their record in that department was frankly not very good, and actually, if we're honest, ours isn't always very much better, is it? There is still a problem in the sinful heart. Even though we're believers, there is that within us that wants to run life by our policies rather than by God's promises. That's particularly tempting in churches um, where, you know, it's very easy to think, well, if we had a bit more money and a few more people to help and if we got a good committee together, we'd soon crack this. As soon as we start to think like that, we reveal that we're relying on our policies rather than God's promises. And very often our human heart would love to receive the deliverance that God offers us from enemies like the Assyrians and the weakness and the failure that so often is in our lives. But are we really sure that we want to submit to him as the sovereign over every part of our lives? That's the challenge, isn't it? Uh, Augustine, whom God greatly used, St. Augustine, uh, in a uh, previous um, generation of the church, before he became a believer, said his prayer was, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. That is often the attitude of our sinful heart. Lord, make me holy. Yes, I can. I agree it would be good, but, but not yet. And don't touch that and don't change this. So the question is, how will the faithless city be transformed into the new Jerusalem, the faithful city? And to answer these uh, dilemmas, God inspires Isaiah to project himself into the future to answer ahead of the time the questions that the exile will raise and to prepare his people to know 
that there is a glorious future ahead and that God will use even their captivity in Babylon to bring about something wonderful. So chapter 40 is the uh, opening uh, sort of overture to the second half of the book and it tells us that there is a better story. We know that his name is Jesus and Jesus is all the way through this chapter. Now people sometimes say to me, you know, I know that Jesus is in all the Old Testament, but where is he? You know, sometimes people in Bible studies do that, don't they? Where is Jesus in this passage? It can sound a little bit like, uh, is he hiding in verse 4? Is he tucked around the corner in verse 11? You know, he's not hiding away. Where is Jesus in this passage? Look, wherever you have God, you have Jesus. The Trinity is not an invention of the New Testament. The Trinity is the eternal Trinity. So wherever there is God, there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is not revealed until he becomes Emmanuel, God with us. The Spirit is not given until Emmanuel dies on the cross and rises from the dead. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always there in the Trinity as God in the Old Testament. So every time we come across the Lord in this chapter, Jesus is there. And we should be lifting our hearts in thankfulness to God that there is a better story, and his name is Jesus. So verses 1 to 11 are a resounding message of comfort and hope. This is what God will do, and we can look back on it and say, yes, he's done it, and therefore we can find our faith strengthened for all the things that he's not yet done that we're still looking forward to. And this chapter is designed, obviously, not just to give us information, but to change our lives by cultivating an active faith in the place of doubt and unbelief. That's always the purpose of scripture. I mean, it's great that we make notes when we're hearing the Bible uh, expounded and when we study it in our own homes, as I hope we do. Every day we need to be in the word of God. And it's a great thing to write down the things you learn in a diary or a notebook. But it's much more important to believe and act on what we hear to find our lives being transformed by the word of God. Because it is living and powerful. And that's why we have Bible expositions like this, because it is the word of God that does the work of God. Uh, At the Cornhill course, we often had a strap line that said, the spirit of God takes the word of God to do the work of God. And there is no plan B. The spirit of God takes the word of God to do the work of God. And if that work is going to be done in our hearts and lives, then it will be by the Holy Spirit through the word that God has spoken. It is the word that is the living, enduring word of God. And so in these first 11 verses, uh, we see tremendous promises from God. And then in the second part of the chapter, big questions. Does God really have the power to do it? And does God really have the will to do it? Does he really care enough? And you see, those are questions we face every day of our Christian experience, don't we? If the gospel is true, why does it seem so unimportant in our contemporary culture? Why doesn't it have more impact? Does God have the power? Does he care? Have the idols of the 21st century finally made God irrelevant? And as we struggle each day with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that's the normal Christian experience, don't we sometimes ask, 
Why doesn't God intervene? Is he powerless? Does he not care? And then when we hear the dreadful and terrifying storm that's unleashed on our Christian brothers and sisters in some Middle Eastern countries, and what looks like the catastrophic destruction of everything Christian in its path, you think of what's happened in Iraq and in Syria. Why doesn't God intervene? Does he have the power? Does he have the will? And Isaiah 40 says, yes, 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 again, against the darkest background of the exile, which seemed to indicate the total eradication of God's plans and God's people. So it's a message that we need, because we too face challenges different in content, but the same in essence as they faced in Isaiah's day. So let's just notice briefly these four important things in these verses. Firstly, that God will end the exile. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and tell her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. The expression of judgment, the experience of judgment is going to end. Now this word comfort is a word that belongs in our culture to fabric softeners. You put it in your washing, don't you? Or we think of comfort as chicken soup. Or we think of comfort as cups of hot chocolate on days like today when it's very cold outside. And it can seem a little self-indulgent. But the word, the Hebrew verb, means at root to cause to breathe again. Or to breathe life into. To give strength to. Comfort. Comfort. Even the English word, com, is with and fort is strength. So it means put strength into, give new breath, new life to. And the repetition, comfort, comfort, indicates the intensity and the urgency of the message. And notice that the comfort is a word that God speaks. The Spirit of God takes the word of God to do the work of God. What does he speak? Well, he speaks tenderly, that is to the heart, to the deepest recesses of the personality of his people in Jerusalem, and he cries to her that it's going to end, that the warfare is past. So there is power and love brought to the depths of their being by the word of God. Now, my friends, if we don't listen to that word, we won't know God's strength and we won't experience his love. Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. That's a really important concept. The words I have spoken, they are spirit and they are life. So the question is, to whom are we listening? Sometimes these days I get wheeled out to speak at senior citizens meetings. I can't think why, but uh, anyway... I am. And I meet Christians in my age group, retired age group. And they're often very discouraged and very downcast. It's partly that everything has changed so much in their lifetime and they can remember a better time when many more people seem to be Christian in our country. I understand that. I can share that. But, you know, that can easily become a singing of the song I believe in yesterday. And we're not people who just believe in yesterday. So I usually say to them something like this. How much time do you spend listening to God in his word with the time you spend listening to the media, to the news bulletins or reading the newspaper? 
See, a lot of retired people go out and buy their paper in the morning. Oh, they've had their Bible reading for about five minutes. And now they bring the paper home and read it for an hour. And then they wonder why they're depressed and why they're discouraged. Because what they're doing is not just keeping up with what's going on. They're imbibing the world's way of looking at the world. And the world cannot explain the world. Only the word can explain the world. And that's why we need to be in the word of God to understand the world in which we live. Because the world doesn't have access to God's wisdom. And if we spend all our time, you know, it's easy, isn't it, with our phones, just catching up on this and that and all the news bulletins and the social media and things like that. Well, there's nothing wrong in that except we need to realise that it's the world's way of looking at things. And how much are we listening to God's way of looking at things? How much time are we giving to the word that God speaks? Because if we don't do that, we will be discouraged and our perspective will be increasingly governed by and limited to this world. Now, the comfort comes from the Lord. The strength comes from the word of God. And this is the message, that the judgment is finished, that the war is over, that the iniquity is pardoned, that it's been paid for, and that the punishment is sufficient. The Lord, they have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. Let me just say a word about that because people often stumble on it. Does that mean that God vengefully gives double the punishment? No, it doesn't. The Hebrew uh, idiom means this. If you take a piece of paper like this and you double it over, you have an exact match of one half to the other half. And that's what this idiom is saying, that God has exactly matched the punishment to the sins. It's not double in quantity, it's a double of the sins in an exact equivalent of the punishment. And that, you see, is justice. That's what happens when God moves in a just way to deal with sin and they had experienced that or they were going to experience that in the exile and God is saying that's all done now the sins have been covered we know that that happened through the cross for us therefore this is a message for us through Jesus that iniquity is pardoned that the sins have been covered all of those sins because his sufficient sacrifice is great enough for the sins of the whole world God will end the exile Secondly, God will reveal his glory, verses 3 to 5. The first voice commands a massive road-building project in the desert. It's the way of the Lord, and it's a way for the Lord. See that in verse 2, the way of the Lord, and it's a way that the Lord will travel in the desert. Now, why is God in the desert? Well, he's gone with his people to the exile in Babylon. In the prophet Ezekiel, he sees the throne of God lifting up from Jerusalem and going to Babylon. So even though they were exiled from the land, God was with them, those who were faithful to him and trusted in him, all the way through the exile. Now God is going to bring his people back from Babylon to the land of Judah, to the city of Jerusalem. And uh, he's going to reveal his glory in doing that. So he's coming across the desert from Babylon, back to his city, back to his people. That's why it says, verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. What does that mean? It all becomes level. 
the uneven ground becomes level. The rough places are plain. It's like driving a motorway through a desert. That's what he's doing. Because he's coming the quickest way with his people. Nothing's going to stop him. Nothing's going to impede him. And whatever earthworks are needed, they will be, they will be done so that the Lord can come with his people back to his city. And when that happens, then says verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this is the great hope, the great comfort, strengthening that God is putting into his people. He's going to reveal his glory by bringing his people back from their exile to the home that he had promised them, to the land that he had given them. And now this word glory means really basically the sort of heaviness of God, the weightiness of God. Uh, Whenever you think of glory in the Old Testament, think about the essential godness of God. God is revealing himself, who he really is. And the glory of the Lord is revealed as he makes this highway through the desert back to his own city, to his own country, to bring his people home again. He's spoken, the mouth of the Lord, and therefore it will be. Now, this is where we need to begin to cross the bridge with the New Testament in our own contemporary context. When was this fulfilled? Well, remember our three mountain peaks or hilltops from this morning. We know that on the first hilltop, there was an emperor called Cyrus, who was of the Mede Empire, who conquered the Babylonians in 538 BC and who issued an edict that permitted the Israelites to return to their land. And from that time onward, a group came back to Judah and to Jerusalem. That's the first hilltop. But that was only a partial physical fulfilment. Our verses tell us when the spiritual exile ended because our verses are quoted on the lips of John the Baptist in the Gospels as the story of Jesus begins. Do you remember? John the Baptist is out in the desert preaching a baptism of repentance and the writers of the Gospels tell us that it's a fulfilment of Isaiah 40 verse 3. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John is uh, the one who is fulfilling that. That's in John's Gospel, it's in Matthew's Gospel. His ministry was the real end of the exile as he prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. So the exile was ended physically for some of the Jews when they came back, but the spiritual exile is ended by the coming of the Messiah. And as Jesus came out of the water at his baptism, God the Father testified, this is my son, my beloved one, with whom I am well pleased. And John, who preached that baptism of repentance by which he prepared the way of the Lord, he is the one who says, I saw uh, the Messiah and the glory of the Lord upon him. And we too, by faith, have seen his glory full of grace and truth. So, This promise that he will reveal his glory is fulfilled in Jesus. He ends the exile of human sin and alienation from God, not just for Judah, but for all human beings from every nation as we come to him and experience his transforming power. Emmanuel, God with us, he's the one who ends 
the exile. And Christ is the wonderful bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And that, of course, is a principle for understanding the Bible, isn't it? Martin Luther said, we must read the Bible forwards, but we can only understand it backwards. By which he meant, yeah, we follow the chronological timeline as it develops. But the further you get down the timeline, the more you look back at the beginning and understand it more fully. Because now Jesus has come. And he is the lens through which we understand the Old Testament. So we are the recipients of Isaiah's comfort through the good news of Jesus. And we see God's grace and glory revealed in his son. God will end the exile. He will reveal his glory. He will keep his word. Now it's interesting that there's a link between verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says all flesh shall see it together. And verse 6 says all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. We all need to encounter the eternal glory of the unchanging God because we are all like grass. We are no more permanent than the summer flowers. Human life can be very beautiful, but it's transient. And that is the reality of all the glory of human beings. All our greatest achievements can be removed by the breath of the Lord. It was George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, who said, Death is the ultimate statistic. One in one dies. Think of Sennacherib's army. God breathed on them and they were no more. What is it that endures then if all flesh is grass? Verse 8, end of the verse, the word of our God will stand forever. That's what endures. Literally, it says the word of our God rises up forever, which expresses not just that it continues while everything else fades and wilts, but that its certainty of fulfillment, its capacity for active fulfillment is always there in the word. It's always active, always working. And that's why the breath of God and the word of God are so closely related. Well, that's a great comfort to us, isn't it? God will keep his word. He's going to keep his promises. And he does that because he breathes out in his word the thoughts of his mind. I mean, I'm standing here now and my words are carried to you on the breath of my mouth. And what I'm trying to do is to marshal the thoughts of my mind, which I hope are expanding the thoughts of God's mind in scripture, and convey them to you on breath. That's the way the Bible works. God breathes out his mind and it's recorded in the scriptures through the prophets and through the apostles. And that word of God is the means by which God's purposes get carried out in the world. That's why Jesus was preeminently a preacher. He says in Mark 1.38, let's go to the other villages when everybody's wanting him to heal and wanting a bit of him for all their illnesses and sicknesses and demonic possession and things like that. Of course he demonstrated his compassion and love, but he said to the disciples, no, let's go to some other villages so that I can preach there also, for that is why I came. Jesus is preeminently a preacher. Because he's conveying the word of God. And the spirit of God takes the word of God to do the work of God. So scripture is the word of God, the forever word. The only fixed point 
in our transitory lives, the only certainty in our disintegrating culture. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So let's take encouragement from that, but let's also be committed to this word. The word of our God will stand forever. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. And then lastly, he will shepherd his flock. There's a third voice now that cries in verse 9. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion. Lift up your voice with strength. The picture here is the fallen city of Jerusalem. Zion is the temple mountain. It's about to be renewed. And verse 9 is full of excitement. It's as though there's somebody up on the hilltop. And the watchman on the top of the hill sees this great procession of the Lord coming with his people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. It's a very inventive, very visionary sort of picture. It would make a great film, this. And this great company is coming from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And... So you're to say to the cities of Judah, those little uh, watchful cities around Jerusalem that were so easily knocked out by their enemies, say to the cities of Judah, he's coming. Behold your God. He is coming. Look at verse 10. The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. He's the sovereign God. He's in control of it all. And look at verse 11. He's the shepherd God. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Now, of course, the two belong together, the sovereign and the shepherd, because the ruler in scripture is to be the shepherd of his people. So God exercises his sovereign authority, but he does it for the benefit and blessing of his flock, his people. Isn't that just the best news you could ever hear? That the most powerful God, who is sovereign, whose arm rules the universe, is the shepherd God who gathers the lambs in his arms. I love that contrast between verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 is all about this creator, sustainer of everything, who has sovereign power, can do whatever he wants. That's the Lord Jesus. Colossians 1 says, By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Behold your God. His arm, his personal strength rules for him. But then that mighty arm in verse 11 gathers the lambs. He tends the flock. He feeds them. He protects them. He cares for them. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. Those are the nursing ewes or the pregnant ewes who are about to give birth. And you see, this shepherd cares for the needs of the individual. He knows how much they can take. He doesn't walk them too far. He's prepared to carry the lambs. And his compassion extends to those in his flock who are in special need. And that's why David can say, and perhaps we should say much more often, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's the measure of his love. And that love and power are the measure of our comfort, our strength. And that, you might think, should be enough for us. And surely we could go away now and just meditate on that. 
But we'd only say that if we didn't really know our own hearts. I mean, it's easy for us here on Saturday afternoon to agree with this passage in the quietness here while we've got our weekend away. But the real test is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, when we've got to trust God to carry out his promises in the pressures and sometimes the perils of our everyday life. And we know that saying it so doesn't necessarily make it so. We've got to move from the theoretical to the practical. So in my last ten minutes, let me ask these two questions. And on the sheet you'll find that these are called problems of doubt and despair. Does God really have the power? And does God really care? It's expressed in verse 27. Just look down with me at that verse, if you will. My Bible, I need to turn the page. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? See what he's saying? I don't, God doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't care enough to do anything about it. And by way of answer, the rest of the chapter picks up that statement in verse 9, Behold your God, here is your God. And it begins to relate it into the doubts and despair that we often feel. Now we could spend two sessions, at least on the second half of this chapter, but I just want to pick out three things for you, which I hope will be a real encouragement to you. Let's read verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Remember the text, verse 9, Behold your God. Now this is a brilliant piece of writing. Of course we shall never be able adequately to comprehend how great God is. We were singing that lovely song about how great is our God, sing with me. And we do comprehend something of it, but it's far greater than anything we can understand. If we could fully grasp God with our minds, well, whatever we ended up with wouldn't be God, because he would be smaller than the compass of our human intellect. So we're never going to get God into our minds fully, but we can know enough about him to love and serve and follow him. And in verse 12, Isaiah takes some very ordinary human measures And he blows our minds by relating them to God. Just see with me what he does. He says, look at the hollow of your hand. Look at the span of your hand. Think about your shopping bag and the scales in your kitchen. They're all four very everyday things. What do you measure in the hollow of your hand? Well, a few drops of water we can carry in our hand. What do you measure by the span? A few inches you could mark out if you were wanting to cut a piece of material or wood or something like that. What do you have in your shopping bag? Well, a few goodies that whichever your favourite supermarket has provided. And what do you weigh on your kitchen scales? Some grams of this and some grams of that. Now think about God. What does he measure in the hollow of his hand? Oh, just the oceans of the world. What does he measure out with the span of his hand? Well, the heavens. He marks out the universe. What does he have in his shopping bag? Just the dust of the earth. 
And what's he weighing on the the scales in his kitchen? The mountains and the hills. We say that's very fanciful. It's very poetic. It's not fanciful. That's how great God is. We just make him pocket size. And then we wonder why he's insufficient for us. Because we've reduced him. Isaiah's in the business of blowing your mind about God. If God can hold the oceans of the world in the hollow of his hand, then he is, of course, the creator, sustainer, the all-powerful God. So count on his greatness, because you can't think too much about his greatness. You can't have too big a picture of his greatness. Think of the mind that behind it, that's behind it all. Just look with me, please, at verses 13 and 14. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? You know, when God decided to uh, create the world, who was on the committee? Did he have a mentor? Did he have a consultant? Of course not. So what does that make us? Verse 15. Behold, the nations, plural, are like a drop, singular, from a bucket. Again you say, oh that's extreme. Yeah, of course he's making the point. That God is so much greater than even the... Of course he loves the nations. Of course he cares for the nations. Of course he sustains the world that he's made. But compared with the greatness of God, you put all the nations together, it's just like a drop in a bucket. That's how great he is. And we don't have a big enough view of God. Look at verse 17. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So count on God's greatness. Don't make your alliances with Assyria and with Egypt. Don't go for the idols that the pagan world around you is worshipping. Count on the greatness of God. He is utterly other, utterly superior to anything that we have understood. And then in verses 18 to 26, count on his uniqueness. If we don't have the Lord Jesus Christ at the centre of our lives, if the word made flesh is not really our Lord, then I can assure you that the vacuum will be filled by something that we will create. And that is what is the definition of an idol. So verse 18 says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Okay, take an idol. We know that they were worshipping idols and we know that idolatry is the default position of all our hearts. It's the thing that we think we can't live without. It's the thing that we put in the place of God. But however much we invest in it, it's part of the created order. It will rot, it will tumble. You want to make an idol? Verses 19 and 20 are brilliant in the way that they demolish idolatry. What do you do if you make an idol? Well, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. That is a luxury idol. It's overlaid with gold and it's got silver chains, so you'd want to put that outside your front door, but you need the silver chains because someone might nick it because it is an idol and it has no life of its own. Maybe you're going for the economy family model idol in verse 20. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood, ah, but it had better be wood that will not rot. And he seeks out a skillful craftsman 
to set up an idol that will not move because it's terribly embarrassing if your idol rots and falls on its face in your back garden. He's deliberately poking fun at it. We're meant to be holding our sides laughing, saying, how stupid, and then think, yeah, but how human, how much unlike that, how easily my idols take over. I need to count on God's uniqueness because there's only one God and to put anything or anyone, especially ourselves, in his place is really the height of stupidity and rebellion. Look at verse 22. He brings princes... Uh, sorry, verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He reigns in unapproachable majesty in the heavens. And what are we? What are you and I? Well, my friends, we're grasshoppers. (laughs) One commentator says grasshoppers are little squeaky creatures jumping up and down. It's a bit like the human race, isn't it? Compared with God. He doesn't despise us and he doesn't write us off and he hasn't finished with us. But we are not in charge. We are not in control. We are like the grasshoppers. And he stretches out the heavens and he controls everything that he's made. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He doesn't belong to any human category. He is utterly unique. So verse 25 says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. That's the Lord Jesus. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He brings out their hosts by number, that's the stars at night, calling them all by name. He knows how many there are, though no human scientist knows. And he's calling them by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one of them is missing. Count on his uniqueness. I think one great weakness of the evangelical church in Britain today is our doctrine of God is so feeble, so poor, so small. And we need to ask God to expand our minds and our hearts to see just how utterly different he is, how all-powerful and wonderful he is, and how gracious he is to reach out to us. So count on his greatness, count on his uniqueness, and lastly, count on his involvement or his engagement with us. Because he isn't remote, he isn't just sitting there and looking at the grasshoppers. He's involved with us, he cares for us, he loves us. So why do you say, verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord? Haven't you known, 28, haven't you heard? The Lord's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. See the logic. If the Lord knows every item of his creation, he knows you. How can he ever forget? You're one of his dear people whom he's redeemed through the blood of his son. He's not lacking in power. He's not lacking in his pastoral care and compassion for us. He's the sovereign shepherd. And all that his power offers is made available by his covenant grace to us. We're his needy sheep. It's not that he's so great he can't be bothered with us. It's that he's so great that he can be bothered with us. And his compassion is infinite. 
and he knows everything about us and his strength is made perfect in our weakness. There's no doubt about our weakness. But look at what he does for the weak, verse 29. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might he increases strength. We are often faint. We are often without strength but he doesn't faint or grow weary. He's the one who sustains and strengthens us in every way. He increases strength. And look, he's the one who renews those who wait on him and wait for him. Even the strongest of human beings, young men who are uh, fit and well and strong, they will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Sometimes we do need to soar like an eagle. Often we do need to keep running the long distance race. And always we need to be walking, trusting in him. And he promises to give strength, to revive us in our weariness, to take over our faintness, to increase our strength. And as we pray... We express our dependence on him and he responds by giving us what we need to keep going, to soar, to run, to keep walking. Well, I believe this is a very important word for us today. That as we see the truth of God's word denied and derided and then by many people despised and ignored, not only in the world but even in the church as well, we're not to be surprised by that. We're not to be daunted by that. Behold your God. And when it seems as though the idols of Babylon have won, remember the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Remember that Babylon and all its idols, all flesh is grass, which flowers today and tomorrow is gone. But remember that the word of our God will stand Forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, friends, let's fix our eyes on this sovereign shepherd. He laid down his life for us, his sheep. Let's remember the finished work of Calvary. Let's remember the empty tomb and the glory of the risen Lord. And let's remember the third hilltop, the mountain peak of the not yet, his promise to return. The certainty of the new creation where righteousness dwells. The heavenly Jerusalem. The eternal city. Here is your God. And his name is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus is the one to whom this chapter points. Listen to him. Trust him. Serve him. Live for him. And live for what will last forever. Because if we are not firm in faith, we will not be firm at all. Let's pray. We bow before you, our great and glorious God. And we acknowledge how often our view of you is so impoverished. We listen so much to the world around us. We see so much of the pressures of the life that we have to live in this world. And we know that you don't take us out of it. But we pray that you will protect us in it and keep us clear-sighted in the midst of all the challenges of our culture and our world. 
Help us to have an ever clearer vision of you, the true and living God. And grant, Lord, that we may never make you just pocket size, convenient to fit into our bags and to be there when we want you. Lord, help us to see that our little lives only have meaning in the light of your greatness, your sovereign power and your incredible shepherd care. Thank you that you carry us when we're weak. Thank you that you sustain and strengthen us and keep us running, keep us walking. Thank you that you constantly move to us in grace and mercy and compassion. So we pray that you'll increase our faith. Pray that you'll give us an increasingly clear vision of who you are and of what you've done for us. And we pray most of all, Lord, that our lives might count for your glory in this world. And that as you've brought us back from the exile of sin and judgment into the glorious freedom of the city of God and the people of the new Jerusalem, Oh Lord, please help us to live lives that reflect the Holy One of Israel, lives that are submitted to the King of Righteousness, and lives which glorify the Sovereign Shepherd. For your name's sake. Amen.